0: From Madison, Wisconsin in the United States of global hegemony, it's Didactic
1: Syncast, with your host Eric P. So powerful.
0: not only a few heart-stopping seconds of anxiety.
1: Hello, Earthlings, and welcome to the Didactic Syncast, your overview of everything important on the planet Earth. I'm Eric S. Piotrowski, a.k.a. Duke Scaff, in the world of video games and Twitter, a.k.a. Skartol in the world of Wikipedia and Reddit. Today is Saturday, the 14th of December. Yesterday was Friday, the 13th. Dun-dun-dun! On this show, I bring you a range of news stories, historical and literary perspectives, and my opinions on topics like current events, war, human rights, economics, education, hip-hop music, and killer robots. So buckle up and let's get started.
0: A little bit better and dope, bitch. A brand
1: new kid to show biz. With knowledge, I persevere. But if I now do me a favor,
0: favor. let me in here. Then we can find a rhyme to fill in space and drop the bell. I know it's
1: been a long time since I rapped at you, as Jim Ankower always says in The Onion. uh, What can I say? It's been crazy at school. We have progress report grades due this week. I got mountains of papers to grade. You know, these papers, man. God, I don't know. Why did I become an English teacher? That's the real question for you, because, I I mean, the trade-off, the reason I became an English teacher is because you get to talk about life and and, and literature and, and what it means to be human and we get in all these philosophical discussions and I get to ask them about like politics and, and what their rules for life are and all the rest of it. So there's a lot of rewarding things that come with being an English teacher that you wouldn't get in any other subject. But the downside is that you get these mountains of papers and stories and essays and poems and just... All these things you got to grade. I love when I go online. Like, I'll post on Reddit about, like, oh, the paper. I posted this thing not long ago that was, like, you know, the papers hate you and, and the papers are always there and they will eat your soul and this and that. And people responded, like, you're teaching wrong. My dad taught for t- 35 million years and he never had a single paper to grade and blah, blah, blah. And I'm, like, your dad was lying. I don't know what you're talking about, but um, whatever. I mean, this is the life I chose. I think I got spoiled last year because I had a student teacher and she graded all the papers. So it was like, I didn't have any papers to grade. I was like, this is a great new life for me. But, um, the, the, the biggest downside, in addition to feeling like I sometimes don't have any free time, except on Saturdays when it's time to record the SinCast. cast. Booyah. Um, the other down, the other downside is that, I don't have time to do the kind of writing I want to do. So I'm working on this book about my life and the different parts of it and how they fit together at jagged angles. And it's just, it feels like I never have time to work on it. And when I have time, I don't have energy. And when I have energy, I don't have time. And that's the that's the the, the real uh, paradox of being a teacher, I think. Because I have a planning period second hour, which is the beginning of the day, right? And then I have a planning period fifth hour toward the end of the day. And in the morning, I have... The energy to grade papers, but I don't have any time to grade them because I gotta read emails, I gotta plan for the day ahead, I gotta make photocopies, I gotta check my mailbox, and all the rest of it. And then at the end of the day, I have time because I'm I'm in this you know study hall, uh, but I don't have any energy. I'm just so worn out from teaching all day and doing all that stuff in the morning that come the afternoon, I'm just like, so whatever. It's a constant back and forth, blah blah moan whinge. Uh, I gotta talk about Bat Kid. Come on, dude, you're not going to badmouth Bat-Kid, are you, Piotrowski? No, I'm not going to badmouth him, but I just want to say that I think it's a bit silly that the the city had to do the damsel in distress thing. Because, I mean, for those who don't know, this is an amazing story. There's this kid who's uh, working, you know, he had sent a request to the Make-A-Wish Foundation and he wanted to be Batman, and Make-A-Wish Foundation is a great group that you know grants wishes, basically, for terminally ill kids. And I think I remember seeing that he's sort of on the mend, so the kid's doing well, which is good news. But anyway, the city of San Francisco basically came together and let this kid be Batman for a day. And they, they set up all these situations where it was like, we need you to save this you know building, it's going to blow up or whatever. And the kid looks so awesome. He's he's taking it so seriously. He's dressed up as Batman. He's like Bat Kid to the rescue. And it's just a beautiful, awesome example of, you know, a community coming together. And there were thousands and thousands of people helping out with this, you know, lining the streets, cheering for him. And that's just a beautiful thing to see, you know. Uh, but it just it, it frustrates me a little bit, especially in a place like San Francisco, which is a pretty progressive place, that they still had to make it as damsel in distress or some woman like, help me, oh, help me. And I, I, it's not a big deal, but it's just another one of those things where it's like, ow, couldn't you find some other person, you know, some other situation besides the damsel in distress, this ancient stereotype that gets shown off over and over again. It's not a big deal, but I just, I had to complain because that's who I am. That's my life. Uh, Speaking of something else now, uh, Debbie Morris is just an amazing person. I read her book, uh, Forgiving the Dead Man Walking, and it's just absolutely astounding. And I've got some video here from uh, this local news station in, I think it's New uh, New Orleans. Um, But it's, it's, you know, her talking about her experience. Oh, it's starting to play now. Here, wait, don't play yet. And it's just amazing because she's such an amazing woman, and, and she talked about her experiences and how horrible it was, but... Then she talked about how she had to end up forgiving him because it was eating her up. And uh, you should watch that video because it's really amazing. And I'll see if I can find some audio here. I don't know. Probably not.
0: The men eventually decided to let the teenager go.
1: She went for help for herself and her boyfriend. Brewster survived after being shot, stabbed, his throat slashed, and left for dead. After a few years of treatment,
0: Brewster made a full recovery, but Cuevas was deteriorating inside.
1: So Cuevas is her, um, I guess she got married and that's her new name. She was Debbie Morris when she wrote the book.
0: Survivor's guilt. Why did I survive and Faith Hathaway did not? Cuevas testified in the trials that ended with Vaquero spending life in prison and Willie on death row. But soon, a nun was fighting for Willie's life and reopening the
1: wounds of his victims. So that was Sister Helen Prejean, and and uh, she was upset because Helen Prejean hadn't talked to her, you know, the woman who had been victimized by these men, and uh, she was talking out for the men, and, and, and so she got to know Helen Prejean, and it just became this beautiful friendship, and eventually Debbie Morris uh, ended up forgiving the guy, and it's just an amazing story, and she's an amazing person, and uh, Radiolab had another story recently about a guy who um, had adopted this girl, and then the girl got murdered, and he ended up, forgiving the guy who murdered his adopted daughter. And it's just this heartbreaking story about, um, you know, that mercy, that that amazing grace, that, that ability to find love in your heart for someone who's done something horrible to you or to someone you love, I think is really, that's the redemptive magic that exists in the universe that could save us all if we are going to be saved. So we have to tap into it. We have to recognize the amazing people who can summon that mercy and try to find it in ourselves for people who do much less horrible things to ourselves or to other people. Someone cut you off in traffic. You you suck. I hate you. Why not be able to forgive that person if Debbie Morris can do the amazing forgiveness acts that she has done? Uh, This week's taking action action is from Amnesty International. Congress must investigate drone strikes. As you may have seen, uh, the U.S. dropped another bomb. I think it was in Yemen on a Wedding party, so what the heck? And Amnesty International has this uh, article post on it. Mamana bibi. a 68-year-old grandmother, was killed in October 2012 as she picked vegetables in her family's fields. The U.S. government has not acknowledged her death nor spoken to her grandchildren, some of whom watched the Hellfire missiles hit their grandmother while standing nearby. Urge President Obama to explain why and on what legal basis Mamana Bibi was killed, and urge Congress to initiate an independent and impartial investigation of her death and all other alleged unlawful killings resulting from U.S. drone strikes. Amen. Sign the petition. Make some action, people. We got to rein in these killer robots that are killing people in our name. All right, let's talk about some current events. Elizabeth Warren is not running for president. Uh, This is from Business Week. Which one is stronger, the campaign to draft Elizabeth Warren for 2016 or the movement to deny that Elizabeth Warren has presidential ambitions? The latter gained momentum yesterday when the Massachusetts senator, speaking at a press conference with the newly elected mayor of Boston, denied she was considering pursuing the Democratic nomination in 2016. Quote, I'm not running for president, and I plan to serve out my term," she said. I am not running for president. I am working as hard as I can to be the best possible senator I can be. Uh, Later in the article, there is at least one benefit to the ongoing draft Warren movement, though. Even if it is a pure media creation, she'll help keep others in her party honest about Wall Street and the continuing need for financial reform. (laughs) Amen, yo! Elizabeth Warren's so awesome. If she doesn't want to run for president, fine, don't run for president. But I love having her in the discussion, and I think the more... Uh, press she can get, the better, because she is keeping people honest. Meanwhile, in uh, Fort Worth, there's a really interesting article on climate progress, which is at thinkprogress.org, and uh, they there's this sort of, re- you know, cumulative research piece that includes links to all of the different articles that it's citing, and the headline is, Fort Worth shows why so, why so many towns are banning fracking, and it's just got all this interesting stuff. And links to all these different articles you can read. Uh, Several cities and counties in the U.S. have instituted bans or moratoria on the oil and gas extraction technique of hydraulic fracturing or fracking in recent years, and Fort Worth's experience with urban fracking shows why quote, Fort Worth has been fracked to capacity, resident Don Young told Julie Demarski for the DeSmog blog there's no turning back, some days the air is so bad you can't see downtown so if you've seen these pictures of Shanghai that have been going around recently people showing their air filters and, and you know, a building 200 kilometers away that you can't see or I don't have any idea if 200 kilometers is a long distance but you know, several hundred feet away it's like and you can't even see the building because there's so much smog in China, well we have cities in the US where it's like that, Los Angeles is like that sometimes, but it sounds like Fort Worth is like that because of fracking, or at least partly because of fracking. <clears throat> Chesapeake Energy began offering $300 and a pizza party for owners of mineral rights in predominantly poor and working-class African American neighborhoods in 2003, and encountered little resistance. Desmog Blog reported. Now Fort Worth has around 2,000 wells. Residents have been sickened by vapors from drilling operations, found their neighborhoods suddenly ruined by noise and fumes, and had their water sucked up by drilling operations in the middle of severe drought. Five sites were found in 2011 to be emitting pollution above state limits, according to a study commissioned by the Fort Worth City Council, and most of the 388 sites studied released visible emissions. Right next door to Fort Worth, the Dallas City Council is considering letting fracking start up in town, with a vote likely to come next week, capping a three-year fight over the future of fracking in the city. So, uh, you know, uh, yeah, that's messed up, man. Fracking is uh, is is bad, and I'm against it. Boo. Uh, however, I am for a single-payer health care system in the United States, and who's with me? Colin Powell is with me. How about that? Uh, in a recent article from ABC News, uh, they quote him as saying, I am not an expert in health care or Obamacare or the Affordable Care Act or however you choose to describe it, but I do know this. I have benefited from that kind of universal health care in my 55 years of public life, Powell said, according to the Puget Sound Business Journal. And if you can't trust the Puget Sound Business Journal, who can you trust? Uh, Last week at an annual Survivor's Celebration Breakfast in Seattle for those who, like Powell, have battled prostate cancer. And I don't see why we can't do what Europe is doing, what Canada is doing, uh, what Korea is doing, what all these other places are doing. Amen, Colin Powell, speak truth. And uh, speaking of people admired by right-wingers who are standing up for what's right, I have to make the link however I can, people, cut me some slack, would you? Major General Michael Lennert calls for closing Guantanamo Bay prison base. Uh, he was one of the people responsible for opening Guantanamo Bay and creating its systems. Uh, he says, in 2002, I led the first joint task force to Guantanamo and established the detention facility. Today, I believe it's time to close Guantanamo. Hey, Amen, dude. He writes, the U.S. has held 779 men at the detention facility over the past 12 years. There are currently 162 men there, most of them cleared for transfer, but stuck by politics. Even in the earliest days of Guantanamo, I became more and more convinced that many of the detainees should never have been sent in the first place. They had little intelligence value, and there was insufficient evidence linking them to war crimes. That remains the case today for many, if not most, of the detainees. This is not... Lefty McWingnut here talking. This is the dude who opened Guantanamo. Come on. In retrospect, the entire detention and interrogation strategy was wrong. Now, I want to emphasize this again. And I I say this a lot because I'm often on the side of what's right. Because people don't listen to those of us on the left when we talk about stuff like this. We said that the Iraq war was a bad idea in 2003. February of 2003, we all took to the streets and said, no war in Iraq, and and the politicians and, and the, the, the warmongers and the saber-rattlers, they all said, oh, whatever, a bunch of hippies, get a haircut, get a job, you got to support the troops, and we said, no, this is a bad idea for Iraq, it's a bad idea for the United States, it won't be fighting terrorism, it's just going to lead to more death, we don't have enough evidence of chemical weapons, etc., 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 and everybody said we were idiots. And then it turned out we were right. And and there was never any point at which the people on the right, Fox News or, you know, politicians like George W. Bush said, hey, those people who were protesting, they were right. And and we, we protested Guantanamo as soon as it opened. We said this is not the American way. We are giving up our soul as a nation. We are going down the wrong path to catch the bad guys. We're taking the taxi to the dark side, as the documentary film says. Great documentary. You should definitely see it. And 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 we were right. And and look, I'm not saying that we you know, people need to be like, eh. We, we're, I'm not saying I told you so just for the sake of saying I told you so. I am saying that we deserve some recognition for being right, because the next time this stuff comes up, people ought to listen to us because we clearly know what we're talking about. And it's not I'm not talking about me. I'm talking about the movement for peace and justice which tries to call attention to the, these stupid policies when we start down that path. Because it it's like if you had a dude named Bob who like everyone listened to Bob. Bob was like the the coolest person in the group. And Bob said, "Hey, let's drink sulfuric acid." And like the Bob's friends all went like, "Yeah, that's cool." And one of Bob's friends said, no, that's that's a bad idea. You're really going to hurt yourself, and you'll be in a lot of pain and suffering, and it's a bad idea, and I don't want to watch you go through that pain and suffering. And, and Bob said, whatever, idiot, lunatic, loser. You're just a scaredy cat. And then Bob pours out some sulfuric acid, and all his friends are like, cheers, and they drink, oh, God, oh, my throat, ah, I'm dying. And Bob goes to the hospital, and all his friends are in the hospital. And, and the other person who said don't do it, who didn't drink the sulfuric acid, he's like, Guys, look, I told you not to drink that, right? I mean, at that point, you should say to the other dude, you know, Tom, whatever his name is, you should say, hey, Tom knew what he was talking about with the sulfuric acid. He's clearly a wise individual. Maybe we should listen to him next time. But that's not what happens. Instead, Bob goes, hey, now that we're all healed up from that sulfuric acid thing, let's light our clothes on fire. And Tom goes, no, don't, that's gonna cause more pain and suffering, and you really shouldn't do that. I don't wanna watch you go through that. And Bob goes, whatever, you loser hippie, and let's burn, oh god, our clothes, we're burning up! So, again, like, you know, when, 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 when Tom shows up with some uh, suggestions for how not to do stupid things, you should listen to Tom! And I just get really frustrated when, uh, people don't listen to Tom, and, and they cause more pain and suffering, not only for themselves, but for other people. And and I'm not trying to say that I'm always the correct, you know, wise Tom guy. But but it, it could be that there are other people who are wise. And, you know, again, like I'll give it up to people who... Uh, this isn't about political spectrums or, you know, who's ideologically associated with which camp. I'm talking about intelligent people who have any kind of foresight. So, you know, when the 2008 disaster was coming forth... Uh... Alan Greenspan said, no, there's nothing to worry about, markets are self-regulating, and he was wrong. But there were a few individuals who saw it coming, and nobody paid attention to them, or nobody in, you know, in the positions of power paid any attention to them. Brooksley Bourne's a great example. So Brooksley Bourne, in that instance, and this isn't, again, she's not associated with a political party, left-wing, right-wing, whatever, she's just a smart person who saw it coming. Those people need to be given special attention. We need to say, hey, look, they understood something about this system. And we need to listen to them when it comes to other things that come up with regard to this system. And so when it comes to international affairs and how we deal with the rest of the world, you know, the, the, the peace protesters who protested Guantanamo Bay from the start, Amnesty International who protested Guantanamo Bay from the start, uh, they, they were, we were right. And, and, and I, I hate the fact that it always takes, you know, some, person on the right side of the political spectrum to say oh this is wrong before everyone goes oh yeah i guess it's wrong we should not do that and when and i hate to see the left get you know constantly dismissed despite the fact that we've got some really valid points to make and and people often ignore us so whatever that's that uh, that's my little aside about listen to tom um and now it so happens i have a friend named tom who's a cool guy Uh, he's not always right so i don't i'm not saying it's not him i'm not talking about tom my friend who makes the guitars Anyway, uh, where was I? The whole entire interrogation strategy was wrong. We squandered the goodwill of the world after we were attacked by our actions in Guantanamo, both in terms of detention and torture. So he's using the T word here, people. Our decision to keep Guantanamo open has helped our enemies because it validates every negative perception of the United States. And this is an awesome ending here, and this will end our current events section. When I was the Joint Task Force Commander in Guantanamo, I spent many nights visiting the facility and talking to the guards. I did this because I wanted to be sure that my guidance for humane treatment was being carried out. Many of my young Marines and soldiers were clearly troubled by my insistence on humane treatment, pointing out that, quote, the terrorists wouldn't treat us this well. My answer to each of these young service members was always the same. If we treat them as they would treat us, we become them. We become them.
0: Respect well, uh-huh. go to check not to from the gate now.
1: Al Jazeera has an article about Japan is showing the world that stimulus works. Japan's new prime minister, Shinzo Abe, has taken the opposite tack from the austerity, cutting of budgets, balance everything, cut social services. Abe, I don't know if it's Abe or Abe but I'll say Abe because that's what it sounds like it should be. Uh, he became prime minister at the end of 2012 and quickly embarked on a program of aggressive government stimulus. He pushed through spending measures focused on improving Japan's infrastructure, child care, and health care, plus other measures anticipated to provide long-term benefits. This commitment to additional spending, which means raising Japan's deficit, is especially striking because Japan is by far the world's leader in its debt-to-GDP ratio, an allegedly key metric for determining whether a government should cut spending for the sake of economic growth. In a widely cited but later debunked paper, economists Kenneth Rogoff and Carmen Reinhart claimed that when a country's debt-to-GDP ratio breached 90%, it could expect reduced economic growth. Japan's ratio of gross government debt-to-GDP is over 240%. This is more than twice as high as the United States and more than 100 percentage points above that of Italy, which ranks second in this category among major economies. And I, I don't know enough about the economics, but Paul Krugman talks about how the the stimulus worked, and we should have had a much bigger stimulus. And so, you know, this whole notion in, in the United States and, and, and in Europe that we got to have austerity and cut all our social spending in order to save our economy, I, I don't buy it. It's a bunch of hogwash. Uh, speaking of cutting social spending, oh my god. Uh, this is a really interesting article from Newsweek and it's called A Hard Lesson in Motown. They will steal your pension. This is a really good long article. I'd like to read you the whole thing, but, you know, I don't want to put you through that and, and, uh, and this is already going to be a really long show because I, the big news is going to be about Pisa. So just wait until we get to Pisa. There's a leaning tower of Pisa news coming up. <laughs> That's pretty good. You like that? So, Detroit is going through this bankruptcy, and they've hired. They basically turned the whole city's budget over to this emergency manager, and uh, it's it's just a nightmare for the public workers who basically their pensions are being slashed. And these old people who worked for thirty, forty years for the city of Detroit are now being told that because the city's in such dire financial straits, which they it really isn't nearly as dire as everyone's making it sound, and we'll get to that in a minute, but the point is that they're now saying, oh, these old people have to have their pensions slashed and go back to work, basically, because they're not getting any money from the city that owes them this money. And it's not – here's the thing. Look, people talk about pensions. Oh, why does the city owe them anything? Blah, the city doesn't owe them anything. Social contract, my ass. It's not even about a social contract. The The, the pensions were was money that the city put aside for these workers, the city took money from the workers and said, we'll hold on to this over here, and and now it's supposed to just be, it's basically a loan. So the city owes them that money back, but because the city borrowed from those pension funds over and over again, now the city goes, well, we don't have any money, sorry, we can't give you your money back on your loan, but Bank of America's going to get all the money they're owed, or like 80 cents on the dollar, while the pension funds get 10 cents on the dollar, or whatever. So, here we go. This is from the article. You should read the whole thing. It's a really good article. It's a, you know, here's the thing. Let me tell you about how I work on this show, people. People. Usually when I'm reading the newspapers, by which I mean Google News and then opening up stuff from various places, I find some articles I think might be interesting. I look at the headline, I'll take a look at that one and I'll read the first few paragraphs and maybe copy and paste those paragraphs into my Google Doc here. And then I'll put the headline in and then make it a hyperlink so I can just copy, paste, copy, paste when it's time to put it on the blog but here's the thing i usually don't read the whole article cause i'm a busy man and i'm often doing this while my students are writing in their journals or whatever so here's the thing with an article like this i started out just reading the first couple paragraphs but before i knew it i read the whole thing And it was amazing because I don't have that much time, but I was like, I got to keep reading. This is so fascinating. And I know everything that's fascinating to me isn't necessarily going to be fascinating to you, but I think you should know about which articles move me in that way because there's a chance they might move you in that way too. So I'm going to end with this folksy old person kind of talking now, but I thought you should know about that. Uh, For decades, political and business leaders failed to set aside the right amount of money each payday to cover the pensions that workers earned and in some cases covered up the mismanagement of pension fund investments. This is nothing short of theft, as pensions are are simply deferred wages, that is, money that workers could have taken as cash in their regular paychecks had they not opted to set it aside. Now, out of the article for a second, here's the thing. People say, well, that's evidence that the government can't do this sort of thing right and we should have private... You know, pension accounts instead, and just give people the money they know better how to invest it, and blah blah blah. But as Wanda Sykes said, have you seen what the American people do with their money? What? How are you saving for your retirement? Um, mostly Powerball. Sometimes I'll uh uh I'll diversify and get some scratch off, but it's mostly Powerball. Uh, we're not very good at saving our money either, so. It's, it's neither, it's none of the above, man. We gotta find something better, right? The government is, is, you know, the, the employer is right to have a set aside thing. Cause if you just, look, if you give me all my own money, I'll save a little bit. Like I'm not getting paid during the summers now because of Scott Walker's an idiot. So I have to save money during the school year so that I have some money available to me during the summer. But over the long term, like I'm not saving a whole lot because I, it's, It's hard. First of all, I don't have a lot of money to save. Like, I'm not making enough money to save a big chunk of it each month. But, you know, I'll have like $200 each month of disposable income, and I could save it, but dude, video games, like, eating out, movies, books, like, I, you know, there's awesome stuff out there that I need to have. Wait, want to have. Right. I know. And I recognize that's the thing is, like, I'm not the best person at managing my money. So it makes much more sense for me to have. A, a, a thing set up where as soon as i get paid the money just goes into this other account and you know that's why we have the state retirement system and this makes me scared that they're going to steal my pension too cuz they did it in detroit they can do it anywhere so again read the whole newsweek article it's really interesting we don't have time to keep going on to it uh because we got to talk about the detroit bankruptcy as featured on democracy now this is a really important interview and uh On Democracy Now!, they had this guy named Wallace Turbaville, which is a great name. I'm Wallace Turbaville. Uh, This kind of sounds like Porgus Fargus. What up, Garrett? And uh, anyway, he's a senior fellow at a research institute called Demos and author of a report called The Detroit Bankruptcy. He is formerly a vice president at Goldman Sachs in the municipal finance department. And again, you know, that's somebody who's been on the sort of dark side and he knows how this stuff works. So the fact that he's writing the report, I think, is extra interesting. So... Amy, And I, I'd love to have the audio from this, and instead of just reading you the transcript, but it would take so long, and I don't have time. I'm a busy guy. Deal with it. Uh, I should play that sound clip, should I? Listen, I
0: don't have time to play with the phone
1: here. I got a lot of stuff I got to get done. Yeah. All right. Uh, I feel like I should be ending the show now. No, I'm not ending the show. Uh, Amy Goodman asked, the way the corporate media is portraying this bankruptcy in Detroit, they say, you know, politicians, Republican and Democrat, they cave to unions. And so over the many, many years around the issue of pensions, for example, you know, they give in in union negotiations. And so the unions are bringing the city down. Detroit, known as a union city. You found something very different. And Wallace Turboville says, oh, absolutely. First of all, something that happened five, ten years ago, I'm not even... I don't even comment on that. This is a battle of ideas and of words. The 18 billion dollar number, bringing up things that happened years ago and saying it was a function of bad management and that's what the pro- that's what's the problem now? No, the problem now they're out of cash. Those are two different things completely, but the point is that the facts don't show as we sit here today and we look at the last five years that any of that is true. 30, the city cut has cut its operating budget by 38% in the last five years in response to the Great Recession. So the benefits in the report we talk about, the healthcare benefits are very comparable to other cities. And if you, we've got all that laid out. Anybody who wants to go look can think of their own health insurance and whether it's comparable. It is. The issue of pensions, $19,000 a year for non-uniformed employees. I have to ask, does anybody think that's excessive? The figure is $30,000 for uniformed employees. If you look at, and then Amy says police, firefighters. He says, yeah, police and fire. If you look at that compared with you know every other city in the United States, it's on the low end. So there's no demonstrable evidence that this cash crisis has been caused by the expense side of the ledger, leaving aside some of the financial deals. So, again, you know, I just want to push back on this notion that, oh, it's the unions, they're so fat and lazy and corrupt, and they just, they get anything they want, because they, you know, they get the politicians to just vote them a pay raise, and when the rest of us have to just deal with it. And the same, we hear that about teachers and nurses in Wisconsin. It's just not true. If you think that my salary of, like, 40 a year as a teacher is excessive, that that's just shows how little everyone else is getting paid. And this is what drives me crazy because we have this thing in the United States and around the world where the I put it like I have this clever little saying. Let me see if I can remember how I put it. The people who own everything get those of us who have nothing to hate other people who have a little something to make sure we don't change anything. And that's what it is. It's pitting the guy making 25000 a year against the guy making 35000 a year. And they all look at the woman making 40000 a year and they go, she's the problem. And meanwhile, we don't pay any attention to the person making 500000 or a million a year. We say, well, that person earned it. Why shouldn't they keep what they earned? But the person making 40000 a year, they go, oh, that person is the problem. And it's just absolutely insane. So, I don't know. This drives me crazy. I got a link to the Demos report on Detroit. You can read it if you want. I read part of it. I thought it was pretty interesting. Uh, It gets kind of technical at certain points, but whatever. (laughs) Anyway, uh, fast food CEOs take in taxpayer subsidized pay. And this is from IPSDC, which what the hell is IPS? International Press Service? Uh, something institute for policy studies okay so uh yeah they have a new report about this these ceo pay subsidies are the result of a loophole that allows firms to deduct unlimited amounts from their income taxes for the cost of stock options certain stock grants and other forms of so-called performance pay for top executives put simply the more corporations pay their ceos the less they pay in federal taxes and ordinary taxpayers wind up footing the bill during the past two years, the CEOs of the top six publicly held fast food chains pocketed more than $183 million in fully deductible performance pay, quote-unquote, lowering their companies' IRS bills by an estimated $64 million. Yum! Brands enjoyed the biggest taxpayer subsidy for its CEO pay largesse. This firm, which owns Taco Bell, KFC, and Pizza Hut, paid CEO David Novak $94 million. million in fully deductible performance pay over the years 2011-2012. Now, I'm sorry. Two years? You're getting $94 million? That's more than $40 million a year. I don't know anybody who does work that important. I don't know anybody, and I mean, when you think about it, you think about who has the hardest jobs, shouldn't that $40 million a year, if it's going to anybody, shouldn't that be going to like coal miners, or garbage men, like people who do the horrible, disgusting jobs that the rest of us wouldn't touch with a 10 foot clown pole, that's a Simpsons reference, Uh, so that works out as a $33 million taxpayer subsidy to Yum, just for one executive's pay, McDonald's received the second largest government handout as CEO in 2011 and the first half of 2012. James Skinner pocketed $31 million in exercise stock options and other fully deductible performance pay. Uh, Incoming CEO Donald Thompson took in $10 million in performance pay in his first six months on the job. Skinner and Thompson's combined performance pay translates into a $14 million taxpayer subsidy for McDonald's. But as you may have seen, the workers are not taking this sitting down. Fast Food Workers of the World went on strike, and Business Week had one of their trademark communist headlines, which was Fast Food Workers of the World Unite, which is an awesome headline. Uh, quote, McDonald's and our owner-operators are committed to providing our employees with opportunities to succeed. We offer employees advanced op- advancement opportunities, competitive pay, and benefits, said Lisa McComb, a spokeswoman uh, for McDonald's. Really? Her name is Mick Combe? I just love the idea that everyone in their PR department is named Mick something. Like Mick, Mick Johnson, Mick Thompson, whatever. Uh, Mick Combe. Lisa Mick Combe. Uh, Mick really? Uh, organizers suggest otherwise the franchise relationship is a smokescreen so corporations don't have to take responsibility for paying more some person named Henry says every detail of food preparation is centralized with that level of coordination workers believe that corporations could figure out how to pay them more and this is it, this is what it comes down to the the companies say, well, it's franchise. the 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 franchises decide how much to pay their workers. We don't have any control over it. Or it's not they don't have any control over it. But they, we shouldn't be held responsible for it. But but when it comes time to question about how long your lunch break's supposed to be, well, then the corporation has a decision. When it comes down to decide how much the franchises pay to the corporation every month, that well, yeah, they the central area is going to determine that. But when it comes to paying workers, oh, our hands are we don't have anything we can do about it. Bollocks. Bloomberg News also reported, not Businessweek, but Bloomberg News, which is, I don't know know what the difference is, whatever. Uh, They had an article called, Pope One, Wall Street Zero. Uh, and this is awesome. They had all these quotes from the Pope had this recent, you know, edict about how capitalism basically sucks and certainly our unfettered free market capitalism sucks. Uh, so, quote, how can it be that it is not news item? It is not a news item when how can it be I'm making the Pope sound like some drunk derelict? How can it be is not news item or some sort of Polish immigrant? How can it be it not news item? I take you, you t- British people take too many tea break. Uh <laughs> my wife can model how tall is she she's 62 she can't be taller than 58 she's 58 and phone jacker references jerky boy not jerky boy's phone jacker anyway how can it be that it is not a news item when an elderly homeless person dies of exposure but it is news when the stock market loses 2 points the Pope wonders. Parentheses, he could easily have also asked about the ink devoted to $100 million penthouse apartments overlooking Central Park, or to the Francis Bacon triptych that sold for $142.4 million. I guess those are Vatican decisions, the, the things they own, whatever. Uh, or maybe that was talking about whatever, the, the press we put on Maybe it isn't talking about the Vatican. I don't know. Whatever. Uh, Today, back to the Pope. Today, everything comes under the laws of competition and the survival of the fittest, where the powerful feed upon the powerless. As a consequence, masses of people find themselves excluded and marginalized, without work, without possibilities, without any means of escape. Human beings are themselves considered consumer goods to be used and then discarded. Amen, Pope. Say it loud, Mr. Francis. You go on with your bad selves. All right, so we got a lot of talk about education. As I said, there's a leaning tower of PISA news. That's going to be the title. That's such an awesome. All right, uh, so Diane Ravitch is awesome. She's written two books about education, so-called reform recently, and I haven't gotten the second one. I haven't even read the first one yet. I'm a bad person, but she's responded to Bill Gates because Bill Gates had some thing where he was in Newsweek, and, and Bill Gates is this major champion of education, quote-unquote, reform, but... You know, the headline in Newsweek was, education is top priority for Gates. Uh, And they asked him about Diane Ravitch and how she's been challenging what Bill Gates has said about how education should be changed. And so in Newsweek it says, when I asked Gates about Ravitch, you could see the micro hard Hombre, Microsoft, MicroHard, get it, uh, who once steamrolled software competitors. Quote, does she like the status quo? Is she sticking up for decline? Does she really like 400-page union contracts? Does she think all those dropout factories are lonely? If there's some other magic way to reduce the dropout rate, we're all ears. Um, So that's what he said to Diane Ravitch, and she struck back. Boom! Come back at him, Diane. Uh, Yeah, so it's loading here from the Washington Post, and uh, she says so she responded point by point. Does she like the status quo? Ravage. No, I certainly don't like the status quo. I don't like the attacks on teachers. I don't like the attacks on the educators who work in our schools day in and day out. I don't like the phony solutions that are now put forward that won't improve our schools at all. I'm not at all content with the quality of American education in general, and I have expressed my criticisms over many years, long before Bill Gates decided to make education his project. I think American children need not only testing and basic skills, but an education that includes the arts, literature, sciences, history, geography, civics, foreign languages, economics, and physical education i don't hear any of the corporate reformers expressing concern about the way standardized testing narrows the curriculum the way it rewards convergent thinking and punishes divergent thinking the way it stamps out creativity and originality i don't hear any of them worried that a generation will grow up ignorant of history and the workings of government i don't hear any of them putting up 100 million dollars to make sure that every child has the chance to learn to play a musical instrument all i hear from them is a demand for higher test scores and a demand of the teachers evaluations to tie those to the test scores that is not going to improve education So, uh, yeah, going along, and there's lots of other things she says that are awesome. Uh, So read that whole interview with uh, Diane Ravitch responding to Bill Gates. uh, And I guess this is from uh, Diane Ravitch as well. Unless someone from the district or the state actually goes into the schools and does a diagnostic evaluation, it is unfair to stigmatize the schools with the largest numbers of students that are English language learners, special education, and far behind in their learning. That's like saying an oncologist is not as good as a doctor as... Uh, Not as good a doctor as a dermatologist because so many of his patients die. Amen. Meanwhile, Microsoft has this thing called stack ranking. uh, And Bill Gates basically wants to see something like it happen in schools where the worst teachers, according to test scores, get kicked out. So this notion of stack ranking was big in Microsoft. And it was supposedly this way that Microsoft got better and stronger. And it, it got rid of the worst workers. So the Vanity Fair has this article about stack ranking. At the center of the cultural problems was a management system called stack ranking. Every current and former Microsoft employee I interviewed, everyone... Cited stack ranking as the most destructive process inside of Microsoft, something that drove out untold numbers of employees. The system, also referred to as the performance model, the bell curve, or just the employee review, has, with certain variations over the years, worked like this. Every unit was forced to declare a certain percentage of employees as top performers, then good performers, then average, then below average, then poor. Quote, And this is from a former software developer at Microsoft. If you were on a team of 10 people, you walked in the first day knowing that no matter how good everyone was, two people were going to get a great review, seven were going to get mediocre reviews, and one was going to get a terrible review. It leads to employees focusing on competing with each other rather than competing with other companies. And this is what Bill Gates wants to see happen in U.S. schools, and it's happening. Meanwhile, there's another news article from The Verge about how Microsoft has abandoned stack ranking. Microsoft is planning to focus on teamwork and collaboration alongside an emphasis on employee growth and development. Someone named Brummel says there will be no more curves, so managers will be free to allocate rewards to teams and individuals as they see fit. A lack of rating should help there, too. Ultimately, the changes can help attract talent to the software giant as it looks to move beyond its Windows roots. And a writer at a blog called EduShyster writes, So let me get this straight. The big business method of evaluation that now rules our schools is no longer the big business method of evaluation and collaboration and teamwork which have been abandoned by our schools in favor of the big business method of evaluation is in which is the case and it's so bogus because bill gates is trying to impose this system of evaluation of teachers that his company just got rid of at microsoft all right we have finally after 45 minutes come to the meat and potatoes of the show pizza PISA, it is the Program for International Student Assessment, and they do – so it's run by the OECD, the Organization for Economic Cooperation and Development, and they do this, this big test every like two or three years, every three years, okay, and that when they release the rankings, it's always portrayed as this crisis for the United States and the United Kingdom and other you know countries that are usually in the middle – And it's always seen as this hysterical moment for like oh god we suck we're not nearly as good as these other countries teach, and then it starts becoming well why do we suck oh it's the teachers unions they're the reason we suck they're so bad we have all these bad teachers we gotta get rid of the bad teachers how can we get rid of the bad teachers and this is why we had a nation at risk in the 1980s and then we had Bill Clinton with his initiative America Teach 2000 or whatever it was called and then we had George W. Bush with his No Child left behind. And now we have Obama with his race to the top. And in every case, it's the same bullcrap. It's this crisis mode. American schools are so horrible. Oh my God. And and how can we get better? Well, we have to look at how horrible the teachers unions are and the fact that they're public schools and we need more charter schools and we have to do other things because this current system isn't working. But the point of all these articles I'm about to tell you about is that it's not true that American public schools aren't working it's that the low scores tend to correlate with poverty and the the schools the public schools the public school model isn't itself the problem the problem is that the the poor schools and uh, tend to have students who you know struggle and the public school model in wealthy communities works great so it's, 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 it's the, the, we're looking at the wrong problem, and we're get, therefore we're given the wrong solution. If, you, if someone went in with a tumor, and the doctor said, like, oh, it's clearly a problem with your, you know, your foot, but the tumor was in the person's brain or whatever, they cut the dude's foot off for no good reason. That's exactly what we're doing with education reform in this country. So let's go through these and see if I can sort of suss out the details of all this. All right. So the the first article is Shanghai Teens Top International Education Ranking, OECD says. And this is an article from CNN. Okay, this is like the first article I read about the whole thing. And it gives a basic overview of what the news basically is about the PISA results. When it comes to mathematics, reading, and science, young people in Shanghai are the best in the world, according to a global education survey released Tuesday. The findings are part of the 2012 PISA... Uh, Le- a leading survey of education systems conducted every three years by the Paris-based Organization for Economic Cooperation and Development, a grouping of the world's richest economies. East Asian economies perform best overall, claiming seven of the top ten places across all three subjects. Part of the reason pupils do so well in Shanghai, according to the OECD's Deputy Director for Education, Andrea Schleicher, is that they have the drive and confidence to fulfill their potential. Quote, in China and Shanghai, you have 9 out of 10 students telling you it depends on me. If I invest the effort, my teachers are going to help me be successful. Schleicher told CNN's on China program, which will air later this month. Now, right there I want to say something. Because I don't have 9 out of 10 students telling me if I invest the effort, the teachers are going to help me be successful. I have 9 out of 10 students, I have 9 out of 10 students telling me Oh, uh, who cares? Stupid. It's boring. I'll just look it up online. That's the attitude I see in a lot of my students. Now, it's not fair to say 9 out of 10 maybe, but at, at least a third of my students have that attitude. It's like, why didn't you turn in that assignment? And they're like, oh, I was just being lazy. Or I procrastinated, and some of my students have too much on their plate. But it's not like, oh, I'm not helping them enough. Like, students who come to me for help. I'll help. I'll bust my ass. I'm giving up my lunch. 20 minutes of lunch to help a student who needs to, you know, jiggle her schedule around for a couple of weeks. So don't tell me I'm not working hard enough. Um, Because that's what always comes out of this. We have bad teachers. And and people say, oh, Piotrowski, what, what are you worried about? If you're working hard, you're doing the right stuff, your evaluations will come out great. Because, A, we don't know that. Uh, you know, evaluations come out all sorts of ways. And student test scores come out all sorts of ways, too. And, and 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 for to to hold a teacher responsibility for how a student does on a test, dude. If did you work as hard as you could have in high school? Would you want your math teacher being held responsible if you didn't pass the math test? I didn't study very hard in my math classes. That was on me. Whatever. But the other thing is, um, what is the other? Oh yeah, this isn't about me. This is about my comrades. You know, and this is about teachers I know who work really hard and and. And and if they're, you know, evaluated according to the stack ranking thing or some bell curve, then they might get sliced out despite the fact they're doing awesome work. Ah! Uh, sim- the article continues, similarly in Japan, which ranked seventh overall, more than 80% of the students disagreed or strongly disagreed that they put off difficult problems, and 68% disagreed or strongly disagreed that they give up easily when confronted with a problem. Uh, and again, I can tell you that's, that ain't that high a percentage in the United States. Uh, Shanghai's outstanding performance defies preconceptions about China's education system being based on rote learning, according to Schleicher. Now, this is an interesting piece, I thought. Uh, The biggest surprise from Shanghai was not that students did well on reproducing subject matter content, but that they were very, very good in those higher-order skills that reflect what you can do with what you know, he said. So that's cool. I think that's interesting because that's a complaint I've heard a lot of times, and I've probably even made it on this podcast, about, oh, education in China focuses on just memorizing and regurgitating. But this shows that there's more than that going on in these tests, which is good. I'm glad to hear that. I'm actually happy to hear that that's the case. But there's a lot more to this story. The article continues by saying, Zhang Zheijin, a deputy principal at the Tsinghua University High School in Beijing, told CNN that Shanghai's, Shanghai's education system invests in teaching staff by offering training and high salaries. Ding, 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 ding. The teachers are very well-paid, very professional, Zhang said. The Shanghai government will spend a lot of resources in making sure that each teacher is well-trained, has opportunities to go abroad, and has opportunities to learn from the best teachers. But look at what else he said. This was another article that was also on CNN where they featured an entire opinion piece from this guy, Zhang Zheijin, uh, deputy principal of Tsinghua University High School in Beijing. And He, said, he wrote this. The latest piece of results released this week show that Shanghai schools are still number one. But, as I argued after Shanghai's first placing in 2009, the triumph comes at too great a cost. The dog-eat-dog and winner-take-all mentality of China's school system isn't just making children unhappy and unhealthy. It's also causing cheating and bribery, leading to an unfair and unequal school system. This is the principal at a Chinese high school, the deputy principal at a Chinese high school in Beijing, So the the person who was at the head of this system that honored teachers who tutored failing kids told me that in her experience, the best indicator of a student's school performance is his or her socioeconomic background. Ding, 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 ding. She said the tutoring of poor kids is just a bandage, a way to get them through the system and not have them drag the school down. Shanghai's real estate market is notoriously expensive, but it's downright unaffordable in the neighborhoods of Shanghai's very best public elementary schools, and when families can't use real estate to buy into the best schools, they try to bribe their way in. This culture of bribing public officials in schools means I can't maintain friendships, make new ones, and date. The last girl I dated told me she would give me two hundred thousand won, thirty-two thousand eight hundred dollars, to get her sister into my school. In other words, this guy is admitting that he can't have friendships, he can't date people because nobody, everybody's just trying to. Everybody who meets him is just trying to bribe him. He doesn't have any real friends because everyone he meets is just trying to bribe him to get their kids into the good schools. And because Shanghai's elementary school classrooms have 30 or 40 students, parents trip over each other in the mad rush to take teachers out to dinner and offer gifts in the hope that their only child gets a little more attention. Oh, I would say for the record, if any parent wants to take me out to dinner and give me awesome gifts, step right up. The, let the bidding start at $500. That's satire, by the way. I would never take gifts for in exchange for more attention or dinner or whatever. Um, yeah, that, no, obviously, that's a horrible violation, and I would never be able to look at myself if I did that. The bribery is on top of every other advantage that Shanghai's wealthy parents have bestowed upon their only child. And that's another thing that's really important. Only child. Ki- parents in China have one kid. Very few families in the United States have only one kid. Um, weekend piano, math, and English classes, private tutoring, summer camp in America, vacations in Europe, and above all, a born-to-succeed attitude. So, this is what's going on in Shanghai. And high-stakes testing has led to a culture of cheating in China. Last year, when authorities tried to stop cheating, a riot broke out. Parents were angry that their children were being singled out when everyone was cheating. So, this is, this is what's going on in China. So, when you hear this news about, oh, Shanghai it's so great, Cheating, bribery, uh, riots. That's what. That's the cost of it. And that's to get people to succeed. What about the kids who aren't succeeding? The Guardian had a good article about these PISA results as well. Although students from 12 provinces took the test in 2009, uh, someone named Loveless wrote on the website of the think tank, uh, the Brookings Institution, the Chinese government only shared Shanghai scores. Hmm quote the OECD should be far more transparent than it has been about the agreements it has with the Chinese government concerning who is tested and which scores are released in other words talking about Shanghai as representing the best education in China is like talking about the scores from you know the upper east side of Manhattan as representative of the United States education system it's pop it's the richest part of the country of course they're going to do well and and also on Shanghai, from the Wall Street Journal. The Wall Street Journal! This is owned by Rupert Murdoch! Gah! Two shears for Shanghai. Uh, it says, Shanghai's education system has another side that is not so praiseworthy. The children of roughly 10 million of the city's 24 million residents are still locked out of formal secondary education. That's because under China's household permit system, known as Hukou, uh, Shanghai and other cities bar children whose parents move from the countryside from attending academic high schools for education past the age of 13. They can only attend vocational high schools that train them for blue-collar jobs. So you're not even being tested if you've moved from the country. Guys, so it's not even all of Shanghai. Ah! And from January 2013, the Washington Post had a piece called Class a Major Factor in Pisa Results. U.S. scores of students from low-poverty schools can match the world's highest-performing countries, but the average is brought down by schoolers from high-poverty schools. Uh, The authors of this report say that in every country participating in the exams, the poorest students perform the worst, and that social class inequality is greater in the United States than in any of the other countries that are reasonable comparisons. As a result, quote, U.S. average performance appears to be relatively low, partly because we have so many more test-takers from the bottom of the social class distribution! Ah! (sighs) The Washington Post uh, this week had an article called The Fetishization of International Test Scores And I should tell you who wrote this Because you want to know sources, don't you? When I look up articles, sometimes I don't always make a note of the source. And so I just say it's from this or that website. This is from Valerie Strauss. And who is Valerie Strauss? I always put it at the bottom of the article. Uh, I don't know. Who's Valerie Strauss? I click around here, try to find, I don't know, some reporter for the Washington Post named Valerie Strauss. Uh, it's always a good idea to look back at what the late great social scientist Gerald Bra- uh, Gerald Bracey wrote about international comparisons. Bracey was the director of research, evaluation, and testing for the Virginia Department of Education from 1977 to 1986, as well as a trained psychologist who was the leading critic of how today's tests measure success. He authored numerous articles and books, including reading educational research, how to avoid getting statistically snookered. So here's what he wrote. Um, First, comparing nations on average scores is a pretty silly idea. It's like ranking runners based on average shoe size or evaluating the high school football team on the basis of how fast the average senior can run the 40-yard dash. Not much linked to reality. What is likely much more important i read that so wrong what is likely much more important is how many high performers you have on both tim's math and science the u s has a much higher proportion of advanced scorers than the international median although the proportion is much smaller than in asian nations that This is not true on PISA, another international comparison that tests 15-year-olds. Only 1.5% of American students scored at the highest level, compared to top-performing New Zealand at 4%, and second-place Finland at 3.9%. Yet the proportion of Americans at the highest level meant that 70,000 kids scored there, compared for, to about 2,000 for New Zealand and Sweden. No one else even came close! Japan was second with about 33,000 top performers. These are the people who might end up creating leading-edge technology in the future. Who cares if Singapore, with about the same population as the Washington metro area, and Hong Kong, with about twice that number, score high. So it just goes to show there's so much more beyond these statistics than just like, who's number one, who's number two? Because it all matters on how you compute those statistics, how you come up with those rankings. And then we have this article from... The woman who founded Teach for America, which is a program I got big problems with, and she's writing in the Wall Wall Street Journal. So again, this is like a crazy right-wing source with a nut-wing person I hate. I don't actually hate her, but I disagree very vehemently with her on almost everything. But she's writing about the piece of things, and she says, let's end the education arms race. Politics makes strange bedfellows, man. She writes, skeptics will caution that Shanghai is not representative of the academic experience of most of China's 200 million students. Hey, I I think I just did that. Thank you, Wendy Kopp, for anticipating what I'm going to be yelling about on my show. The average Shanghai family is much wealthier than the average Chinese citizen. Yeah, we got that. Uh, And invest more in their child's education. True enough. But if Shanghai provides only part of the picture, China's rural regions, where two-thirds of the Chinese students are educated, fills in the rest. So our second stop was a rural community in Yunnan province. In this part of southwestern China, students are already the academic elite if they are still in school at age fifteen to take the PISA exam. Every one of the people in my community goes to school. Every one of I've never been in a place that took the PISA exam, but if I did, every one of them would take it. I mean, except for like we have two or three like severely like you know mentally or physically disabled students, but everybody else takes it. This is, it says, the Rural Education Action Project at Stanford University estimates that fewer than 30% of Chinese students in rural areas will make it to high school. And only five students in a hundred will get the opportunity to attend college. In the United States, it's like 98% of students make it to high school. I mean, our dropout rates are high, don't get me wrong, but they're not that high. Good God. Uh, Now, in her conclusions about how uh, Teach for America clone called Teach for China. Very clever name, I would add. Uh, that's the answer. Obviously, that doesn't sit well with me because it's part of this tired narrative about how all you need is a great teacher and who cares about poverty or anything else. Uh, and a dude in Forbes went communist. Forbes magazine is not. Like, Business Week? Business Week is like the left-leaning because it's owned by Bloomberg, you know, and Bloomberg's kind of left-leaning. So, you know, Business Week is, tends to be pretty level-headed and conscientious about their stuff, but Forbes is like total right-wing. Steve Forbes is a nut job. He doesn't blink, as you may know if you pay attention to Michael Moore. Anyway, this dude in Forbes wrote a piece called Education is Working Just Fine, so talking about the PISA rankings, it says, Faced with such a poor ranking, it is easy to remark with sadness that it is embarrassing that the wealthiest, most powerful nation in the world ranks 17th in education. But an argument could easily be made that this is because we ranked 17th in education that we became and remain the wealthiest nation in the world. So what's the difference, what's the point of this? When we consider the euphemistically named academic achievement gap, the numbers get a little clearer. For example, we know that when students are tested prior to entering kindergarten, children from affluent homes score 60% higher. This is just one of many statistics which suggests that wealthy children and wealthy schools perform at the top, while the majority of schools drag down the average. So now he's flying like a lunatic off the rails. Here we go. The disparity between the nation's wealthiest schools and the poorest is problematic only if our goal is to create an equitable conditions for opportunity and mobility. Yes, I know this is what we say we want, to educate the whole child so they can be empowered from a deeper place within, but our actions betray our rhetoric. Educational equality would hardly be in the best interest of our economy, which is, to a large degree, dependent on wage disparity. And the last time I checked, nobody was really calling for a shift to a socialist economic structure dude, is not that sound crazy? The academic achievement gap, then, is not a problem if our intention is to track students into a stratified labor market. In order for our current economic and social systems to chug along as normal, it is important to standardize an ideal using test scores and other ranking systems that will allow some students to race to the top while others are devalued and left behind. It identifies, reinforces, and encourages young individuals to internalize a sense of self-worth that corresponds to an appropriate exchange value within the U.S. free market. So what the what? Oh my god. If we want to take care of every child in this nation, if we want to respect them all as equally valuable individuals, uh and if we want to rank higher than 17th among OECD nations, we'll have to change more than just our schools. That's a dude in Forbes magazine. Good god. It's like I'm going crazy here, but it's it's not. I'm not crazy. This is the verification that I'm not crazy. I'm not insane. I'm not insane. And I know that no one sounds crazier than a person going, "I'm not insane. I'm not insane." I'm not, you should not abuse women. I should know I'm a medical doctor. I have a mansion and a yacht.
0: I should know. I'm a medical doctor. I own a mansion and a yacht. You should quit
1: traumatizing women. So that's what I sound like. But it's so good to have f- people from Forbes and Wall Street Journal and other places confirm what I've always been saying about how, you know, look, poverty isn't an excuse. I'm not trying to say that, like, it's okay that... Poverty, you know, schools with a lot of poverty tend to do the worst. And kids who come from poverty, you know, backgrounds of poverty, tend to do the worst. But that's the reality. And as someone said on a forum I watched one time, and I, I know I've repeated this on the show, so I apologize for the repetition, but I got to make sure I'm reaching everybody with this and repeating it so people lodge it in their brain, their mind grapes. As uh, Tracy Jordan said, I wonder if I can find that quote. Yes, here it is. The internet is a beautiful place. i got something on my mind grapes I need to talk to you about. What's <laughs> on my mind grapes? Anyway, uh, yeah, this dude on the forum said, if you went into a cancer ward and you said, hey, you guys need to cure cancer in the next five years, that would be a severe uh, lack of awareness about the scope of the problem, right? Because it doesn't work like that. It's just foolish to suggest that that can be done. And the same is true about fixing education in our country. It's not that simple. You just get rid of the bad teachers and everything gets better. It's a much more complicated process. And I would also add, and this is new, so I haven't been repeating this, teaching is as much art as it is science. And we can talk about the best ways to teach and best practices, and we should. And this is why I'm, I'm nervous. I don't want to become one of these crusty old people who's like, I know what I'm doing as a teacher. Nobody can tell me anything. Blah, blah, blah. Because that's where the science comes in and we do need to listen to other people and have people observe us teaching and offer feedback and suggestions. Well, this person wasn't paying attention and and I I wonder if you might try this instead and all the rest of that. But there is a part of it that's art and and you can't, you know, communicate it directly. You can't, you know, examine it scientifically. And, And, you know, every person listening, think about a teacher that affected you in a profound way. Would that person have gotten perfect you know, assessments? Did you always do perf- you know, beautifully on standardized tests? Or did that teacher affect you in some way that goes beyond what's measurable? Because as the saying goes, the most important stuff is often not measurable. And that which we measure is often not the most important stuff um, Descent Magazine had, uh, so we're coming off of pizza now, I guess, yeah, this is the last article, and it has nothing to do with pizza, so, uh, yeah, all that stuff about pizza, man, oh boy, there's so much more than meets the eye,
0: pizza results more than meets the eye,
1: oh god, I'm losing it, I need to eat lunch, we're over an hour already, uh, Descent Magazine got dough, how billionaires rule our schools, uh, this is a really, again, a really good long article about how people with a lot of money have been affecting how school reform happens and Bill Gates is just one of those individuals um, and, and there's a really good look at how the, the rich people are, are affecting school reform and, and they're doing so in a way that suits the needs of very rich people and it doesn't address questions of poverty and it doesn't say I mean, you know, here's, I shouldn't say it doesn't affect questions of poverty because, you know, I, I don't know. I don't know what to think of Bill Gates because, like, I think he's doing a lot of really good stuff around the world. Like, he is helping to fight malaria and stuff like that. And that, so the fact that he's motivated by good intentions, I think, doesn't mean that he can't be wrong about education, but it does mean that we shouldn't be dismissive about the idea of, oh, this rich guy suddenly wants to fix education. But my point is that, you know, people have ways of thinking that tend to benefit themselves, and when billionaires start saying, like, I know how to fix the schools, then it's not necessarily true that they're going to do what's in the best interest of everybody, and we ought to talk to parents of, you know, low-income students and stuff like that and say, what do you think your kid needs? And, you know, a lot of times those parents would say he needs more individual attention. Well, how do you do that? Smaller class sizes, period, end of discussion. And, you know, I'm sure a lot of those parents would say, like, we got crappy teachers. But, you know, the question then is, well, how do teachers get better? Or how do we get better teachers? And I would say, hey, pay them more is a good place to start. So whatever. I don't know. There's so many elements in this, and I don't want to oversimplify it. But anyway, okay, so back to this dissent article. How billionaires rule our schools. Uh, two of the three major international tests, the Progress in International Reading Literacy Study, which is the Pearls uh, and the trends in international math and science study, the TIMS, uh break down student scores according to the poverty rate in each school. The tests are given every five years. The most recent results at the time of this article, 2006, showed the following. Students in U.S. schools where poverty rate was less than 10% ranked first in reading, first in science, third in math. When the poverty rate was 10% to 25%, U.S. students still ranked first in reading and science, but as the poverty rate rose still higher, students ranked lower and lower. of all U.S. schools have poverty rates over 75%. The average ranking of American students reflects this. The problem is not public schools. It is poverty. And as dozens of studies have shown, the gap in cognitive, physical, and social development between children in poverty and middle class children is set by age three. Finally, robotic beings
0: rule the world.
1: The humans are dead.
0: The humans
1: are dead. The
0: humans are dead. They look like they're dead. I'll just confirm
1: that they're dead So that we can have fun Affirmative. I poked one. It was dead. I gotta thank Jason For both of the articles in our Killer Robots file this week, um... The first one is about, it's from Wired Magazine, and uh, I don't know what to think of Wired, because they're an interesting news source, but whatever. Um, Our government has weaponized the internet. Here's how they did it. According to revelations about the quantum program, which apparently is an acronym, but I don't know, what does that stand for? Quantum. Uh, Explanation of acronym, please. Quantum code name is deliciously apt. Blah, blah, blah. Who knows? Maybe it's just the name of the code, but whatever. Uh, the According to the revelations about the quantum program, the NSA can shoot, their words, an exploit at any target it desires as his or her traffic passes across the backbone. It appears that the NSA and GCHQ, which, what the heck is GCHQ? Wired uses these acronyms like we know what they're talking about. Oh, you don't know GCHQ? Jeez, come on, what are you stupid? But they tell you what... Uh, ISPs are, Internet Service Providers. Really? But you're not going to tell us DHQ, GCHQ? what? Maybe it's the quantum headquarters. I don't know. Anyway, according to those things, uh, it appears that the NSA and GCHQ were the first to turn the Internet backbone into a weapon. Absent Snowdens of their own, other countries may do the same and then say it wasn't us. And even if it was, you started it. So, yay, we're weaponizing the Internet. Hooray, your email might get shot down. I don't really know how that works, but I suppose it means you could, like shoot down uh you know the electrical system in iran or something i don't know that's crazy uh and also from J uh they had an article on npr about why chaucer said axe instead of ask and why some still do this is fascinating The most common stereotype of black vernacular is the pronunciation of the word ask as axe. Axe has gotten a bad rap for years. Pronounce ask as axe and immediately many will assume that you're poor, black, and uneducated. New York City's first African American schools chancellor, Dr. Richard R. Green, put it on his list of speech demons. He insisted that axe be eradicated from students' vocabulary. Gerard McClendon, a professor at Chicago State University, is the author of Axe or Ask, the African-American Guide to Better English. He says his parents were well aware of the stigma attached to Axe and taught him there's a time and a place to use it. When you're with your little friends, you can speak any way you speak, all right? Any way you want to speak. Uh, But the minute you get in a spelling bee or a job interview, switch it up quick, McClendon recalls. I've taught my children to do that as well. Sketch comedy duo Keegan Michael Key and Jordan Peele joked that because they're half white, they're constantly switching back and forth. If it happens four times in a sentence, Key says, you're probably going to get two axes and two asks. Talking over each other, they add, but when a cop comes up to you, you definitely use a lot of asks. Ask away, officer. Ask away. Anything you want to ask me, I'll be happy to answer, officer. Um, so he says, uh, so later in the article, it says, um, Jesse Scheidlower, the president of the American Dialect Society, says axe has been used for a thousand years. It's not a new thing. It's not a mistake, he says. It's a regular feature of English. Scheidlower says you can trace axe back to the 8th century. The pronunciation derives from the Old, English ver- the Old English verb axion. Chaucer used axe. It's in the first complete English translation of the Bible, the Coverdale Bible, axe and it shall be given. So at that point, it wasn't a mark of people who uh, who weren't highly educated or people who were in the working class, Stanford University linguist John Rickford says. He says it's hard to pinpoint why Axe stopped being popular but stayed put in the American South and the Caribbean where he's originally from. But over time, it became a marker of identity, he said. Indians in South Africa, black Caribbeans, and African Americans use Axe. Rickford says it's the empire striking back, taking language that has been imposed and making it your own. He adds that eliminating words like acts may help one fare better in a job interview, but not necessarily fare better in terms of the people you hang out with, or not necessarily fare better in assessing your own identity or asserting your own identity, rather. You've got to remember a lot of these language varieties are to learn in people's homes. It's how people's mothers spoke, their fathers spoke, their friends spoke. I don't think any linguist is recommending that you get rid of your vernacular because you need it, in a sense, for your soul, which is awesome. I love that. And that's the thing, is that Langston Hughes had this great poem. I'm going to find it and read it to you right now. Motto by Langston Hughes. I play it cool, I dig all jive, That's the reason I stay alive. My motto as I live and learn is dig and be dug in return. Amen, dude. That's it. You know, that's why we study language. So you can understand what people are saying and you can speak to them in a way that suits their understanding and their way of thinking. And so, yeah. Look, kids who, who, who think that Axe is the, the only correct way or the standard way to say it, they should be corrected. And we should say to them, look, when you go in for a job interview, yeah, you need to say ask. When, as Key and Peel say, hey, talking to a cop, it's a good idea to say ask. But the people who say Axe is wrong and it's horrible and it's bad and it's incorrect and blah, 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 those people should be educated to let them know, you know what, It's not. there's no such thing as one right way to speak a language when I was learning French, I was like, well, how do you say it? And 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 I had to eventually realize that there's no one French language. There are dialects, there are versions of it, that, that what you hear in Haiti is, is a Creole version of French. And I can understand some of Haitian Creole, because it's based on French, but it's not the same thing as French. It's standard French, you know, the king's French, the king's English. But you know what, dude, people in the U.S. don't speak English the same way as people in the U.K. It's not like one's right or wrong. It's just, different and it's okay so if somebody's going to get mad about pedwalk or maths if i said you know i did really bad on my maths test a lot of people in the united states would say you mean your math test or you know i'm a big fan of sport they would go you mean you're a big fan of sports because they might not realize that that's just the way it's said in the uk and the same is true about acts and ask it's just different all right that's it that's it for that let's talk about hip-hop real quick You know what? I'm not going to uh, read this thing. I had a thing about hip-hop life, but I'm not going to do it. I want to talk about Mantra because uh, I haven't played any music on this show except for the stuff in between each segment. Um, but I want to play you a song from Mantra because he's awesome. He's like my favorite rapper right now. Let me cue it up. It's
0: like the world stood still in time for that moment. Nature's brain is now storming Poised and ready to strike with the without warning This is our fortune Drought-stricken one minute Till we damn near drowning in the downpouring We all talk happily of causality As if a thought could actually exist That could ever overstand all of this Forth with we forfeit ability To formally christen this course we orbit
1: So in awe of its enormity I'm virtually destroyed Causing me to perform accordingly
0: A boy could happened to avoid Meteoric planetoid still Paranoid of comets and asteroids, at the point of contemplation, I kneel at the temple of whatever gods invented the constellations, watch for lies peppered across the skies, in the guise of a life force far bigger than you and I, the voyages out there, the story begins right here, where the journey end up is unclear, but the first step is gonna be taken this
1: year. God, I love that song. So it turns out he's Australian. For some reason, I thought he was British, which goes to show that I'm really bad at distinguishing accents. But uh, I just love him. That song is so deep. It's so beautiful. It's all about, you know, the universe and how we relate to it and philosophy and metaphysics and all sorts of other stuff. But the other track I want to play you a little bit of is one that he did called Loud Mouth. Because as you may guess, it sounds exactly like me. I've
0: oh. told you once, I've told you twice. Sit down All right. Here talking. we go again. Yeah. always had the mouth, but never had I had the muscle, and that mouth used to get me in a lot of trouble. I've been outspoken as long as I've been housebroken. Since I could walk, I've been running my mouth, bros so I won't stop until my energy's spent. I can talk out of water with a mouth full of cement. I can talk in a tornado, talk buried in snow. But I ain't no informer, I can talk better than snow. I talk my ass off until I gained a reputation. Now I talk to the generation I was raised in, and it may only last a few minutes till it sure is fun talking sh** Living, you know why. Come on, come on. I am a loud mouth, now, like it not, I, I ain't never, never gonna, gonna pipe down. down I've been the same since playing on the playground
1: Which is why I'm never gonna, gonna put the mic, the mic down, down.
0: <laughs> I am a textbook pool loud mouth, like
1: it or not I am never, never gonna, gonna pipe down Making noise all, all I, I ever been good at, at yeah, so, yeah, so I'ma do, do that, that. Yeah, so I'ma do that, that. Yeah. Beautiful! Oh, I love it. Now the song has a lot to do with like you know I was a class clown and my teachers always hated me for it and I was never good at maths or anything. So it's not totally like me because I always liked education and I tried to be a good student and all that. But I just love the fact that it's celebrating being a loudmouth and I'm like, yeah, that's me. It's like my theme song now. Yeah. uh So check him out, Mantra. His first, uh, his second album is his best one. I don't even remember what it's called. It's the one that right now is on. So check it out. Um and I will find out what that is from. Right here is from his album "Speaking Volumes." Yeah, that's what it's called. So check out his album "Speaking Volumes." That's easily his best one. It also has this collab track with uh, other people called Dead Dedem. Actually, i want to play you a little bit of that because I'm feeling crazy today. Let's go nuts. More mantra.
0: It's impact yeah. the syntax, yeah. bad and yeah. flesh and the rest of Western Hey, his Yo, last night my rhyme made a man overdose. Came home to find some lines in an open envelope. Couldn't let it go to waste. Had to take a dip, better taste. Now he's just another name on the. Form. For an autopsy report stored in the coroner's office problem was lack of knowledge of the drug when he's on it It's kind of subtle if you listen But it bubbles in the system Like them Spring Valley missions When we were just some kids And smelling like teen spirits Couldn't see the limits in a fetal position On the kitchen floor, repulse And I froze for a minute, put my finger on the pulse And too late, his moment was gone oh called me in and brought me in for manslaughter. poor corners called me on a recording on a camcorder. Reported mortars in the chorus beats the court order. And with the drop followed rigor mortis. I'm all for it. Your minds drawn and forecotted. Moral majority are mortified. to call it morbid. Like it can be aborted with the floor that we afforded. I can hear the sirens ring out. <laughs> we ignore them. The metaphors that you to
1: heaven's door. It's oh really man, good. I don't want to turn it down. I want to just let it play. So beautiful. So check out mantra. All right, that's it. We gotta do this quarter that we can get.
0: Romans, lend me your ears. Stop because the end near. But don't panic. you can't function if you live in a fear. Pay attention, you gotta listen to here.
1: Mary Harris Jones was known as Mother Jones. She was born in 1837, died in 1930. She was an Irish American school teacher who became a labor organizer and an activist. One US attorney called her the most dangerous woman in America. And uh I have a quote from her where she she was introduced as a great humanitarian one time, and she said, Get it straight! I'm not a humanitarian! I'm a hellraiser! Like, yes! You go, Mother Jones! Now, I wanted to quote another thing from her, but it turns out she didn't actually say it, which always bums me out. Every time I do work on finding quotes, I track them down, and it turns out that the people I thought said the thing never actually said the thing. And I'm just like, ah, come on. But there's another source. So... Um, I had heard that she had said that, uh, quote, my business is to afflict the comfortable and comfort the afflicted. Because that's such a great concept, right? I love that. It's like my guiding principle in life, right? Figure out who's comfortable and afflict them. And then figure out who's afflicted and try to comfort them. But... Upon closer inspection, it appears, as it so often does, which makes this part of the show very difficult to assemble, that she never actually said it. Apparently, that phrase originated with a writer and humorist from Chicago named Finley Peter Dunn, who wrote a series of newspaper opinion pieces in the persona of a bar owner named Mr. Dooley, who dispensed folksy street wisdom like Langston Hughes's character Jesse B. Simple. And those Simple stories are awesome. You should read those if you haven't. This is a Langston Hughes episode. What up, Langston? Ooh, ooh. Anyway, in 1902, Dunn wrote a story where the bar owner, Mr. Dooley, says, The newspaper does everything for us. This is written in this phonetic, you know, dialect. It runs the police force and the banks, commands the militia, controls the legislature, baptizes the young, marries the foolish, comforts the afflicted, afflicts the comfortable, buries the dead, and roasts them afterward. So that's apparently where that phrase comes from. But whatever, I think it's a great quote. So even if Mother Jones didn't actually say it, it's a great sentiment. Afflict the comfortable and comfort the afflicted. All right, that's the end of the show, finally. Thank you for sticking. If you listen this long, I don't know what to say, man. Thank you so much. I really appreciate those of you who listen in, and I'd love to have more people tuning in and stuff, but it's it's enough to know that there's a small group of people who appreciate uh, this babbling and all these news stories I'm always assembling and stuff. Uh, Show notes and links to everything in this podcast, as always, are on my blog, Didactic Synapse, which at this point is just a collection of links, and I I should write more stuff on it, but I'm not gonna, or maybe I will, I don't know, uh, that's my life, anyway, uh, that website is fbesp.org slash synapse, uh, my website is the floating brain of Eric S. Piotrowski, which is at fbesp.org with links to music I've made and fiction I've written and multimedia and lots of other stuff, you can buy my book there, buy my book! Uh, Shout-outs this week to Jessica and the Duchess and Ian Williams and Mr. Killer Cranky and Phil Olson and Chinny and Stu and Fraser Moores and David Tripney and everybody who's been sending me stuff on Twitter and challenging me on QuizUp and other places. Um, I don't have a lot of time to edit this thing, so I apologize if there's dumb stuff I forgot to cut out. What can I say? I'm a very busy man. Deal with it. Listen, I don't have time to play with the phone here. I got a lot of stuff I got to get done. Thank you very much for listening. Please get in touch with feedback or questions. I'd love to get some questions from people that I could answer on the show because Greg Proops does that and I'm always like, yes, I would like to answer some questions as well, but nobody ever sends me questions. So, um, whatever, if you want to send questions or articles or whatever, esp at fbesp.org, or you can tweet me at dukescath. Uh, I will stop talking now. Didactic Syncast is a production of the floating brain of Eric S. Piotrowski, which is solely responsible for its content. This program is a joint venture of ribonucleic records and Garrison Multimedia. Our show is made possible by a grant from the Fargus Foundation. Some restrictions may apply. See SOR for details. Fight the power. So powerful. God, I'm so exhausted. It took so long. I'm supposed to be doing nothing on my Saturdays. Man, it's supposed to be my day off. I said yesterday, I'm like, I said to the Duchess, I'm going to do nothing tomorrow. I'm going to play video games and eat and sleep and that's it. And and what at me I'm instead I'm spending 90 minutes ranting about education statistics. I'm such a nerd. Uh, at least I get to eat lunch now. Hey, it's it's afternoon. I got to go see what's on Steam.